Father, we thank you uh, for your word this evening, and we pray as we come to it now that what we uh, know not, you would teach us, what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, um, if you want to start what would hopefully be a a polite argument uh, amongst a group of Christians, then one of the quickest ways to do so is to talk about the kind of thing we've just uh, read about in our passage tonight, the second coming. Um, Christians can often begin to fall out when they discuss the end and I think that often happens because we, we don't know when Christ will return, so we often focus on the, the kind of specifics, the how he'll return. And this means that conflict, hopefully friendly conflict, as I said, conflict is not the only thing that can happen. There can be a lot of confusion. There can be a lot of concern for some people. The thought of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is just so overwhelming. For other people, maybe some of us even here this evening, the, the fear is that on that day when Jesus returns, we will be found out. And if we've ever had any of those emotions or thoughts, I think our passage tonight uh, will help us. Now, before we step into the the details of it, I want you to look with me at how it is structured. I thought to myself, should I do this passage in two sermons or one? I'm going to go for one. And that's because if you look at the end of each section, there's two sections, 13 to 18, and then 5, 1 to 11. Look Look at the way each section ends. Look at verse 18. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. And then look at 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And that's kind of the structure we've seen in this series. We've seen that encouragement is a really big theme in this letter. And Paul, as he comes towards the end of the letter, he wants to encourage his friends, he wants to encourage these believers by reminding them of the end. He wants the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to be not a source of conflict or confusion or concern, but of courage, encouragement. He wants it to help create confident, committed believers. That's my uh, prayer for us tonight. And to help us uh, get into this passage, because I think it breaks naturally into two parts, we've got uh, two points tonight, just two, not three. And here's our first heading as we look at verses 13 to 18 of chapter 4. A certain reunion. A certain reunion. That's what I think verses 13 to 18 are all about. A certain reunion. If you look at the opening uh, verse in this section, verse 13 and so on, it, it seems that the believers Paul's writing to, they were anxious about something. They were concerned that some of their Uh, fellow Christians had died before Jesus had returned. 
And this is maybe a little bit difficult for us to uh, get our heads around because there has been uh, a long time, 2,000 years since uh, Jesus uh, returned to heaven. And it seems that many in the the early church, they they were pretty sure that Jesus would return in their lifetime. They seem to have thought it was imminent. Um, In a sense, we could probably do with a bit of that uh, attitude, couldn't we? I mean, it will be, it is nearer now than it was then. And yet such uh, thinking, thinking about that so much, it seems that that's something that they did, it kind of brought complications. In uh, his second letter, which we're going to look at after this letter, Second Thessalonians, um, Paul has to encourage some believers to, who are idle to get working. Seems that some of them were kind of chillaxing waiting for Jesus to return. And Paul has to tell them to get on with it, to work with their hands, that kind of thing. But here it seems to be that concern uh, for friends or family who've uh, died is kind of worrying them, preoccupying them. Now just notice, as we always have to do to kind of qualify these things, notice just in passing what Paul doesn't say in verse 13. Paul doesn't say we do not grieve. That is stoicism, isn't it? That is stiff upper lip spirituality. It is not Christianity. Paul says we don't grieve as those without hope. Jesus wept at a graveside. Jesus calls us to weep with those who weep. Jesus wept at a graveside even though he is the resurrection and the life. I wonder if you know these words. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I did not sleep. I am the thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints in snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Those are the kind of words that are often said at funerals, aren't they? They, they sound so poetic. And yet, what's the big problem with words like that? You cannot hug rain, can you? You, you can't hug wind. When loved ones die, we want them, don't we? We want to hold them. We want to see their face again. And Nicholas uh, Walterstorff, he's a, a, a very well-respected uh, philosopher, who happens to be uh, a Christian, and he has written a beautiful, a beautiful short book called Lament for a Son. And in that book, he describes uh, the experience of losing his son, Eric, in a, in a climbing accident when he was in his early 20s. Listen to Listen to this mature Christian speak about his loss. When we gather now, there is always someone missing. His absence is as present as our presence. His silence is as loud as our speech. Still five children, but one always gone. It is the neverness that is so painful never again to be here with us, never to sit with us, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to cry with us, 
never to see his brothers and sister marry. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death can stop the pain of his death. Friends, that is how Christians often feel in the face of death. That is a real believer talking about staggering, immense loss. And yet Paul also says, Paul says, we do not grieve as those without hope. I think the great promise in this section of uh, this letter is of reunion. And that tonight for some of us, that will be a massive comfort. In verse 14, Paul says the resurrection of Jesus, um, it's not just for Easter, is it? It has implications. Because he died and rose, God will bring with him, Paul says, those who have fallen asleep. Christians who have died are not beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not totally lost. The Lord Jesus Christ is that powerful. And one day, the one who said, Lazarus, come out, he will do the same for each of us. He will call out all who have died in faith by name. He'll call your name, my name. If we die before he returns, he will call us up and out of the clutches of death. And the picture here in these verses, I think it is of, it's of a beautiful reunion. Someone has said, for the first time, all believers throughout church history, all of us will be together. We will be with the Lord. Now, it's really important to say that Paul, I think, in, these, uh, in this first section, in these verses, he, he doesn't tell us absolutely everything about um, end times or what we would call eschatology. And he doesn't speak uh, here in this first part about uh, judgment or the new creation, the kind of thing we see at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Instead, what Paul, I think, does is underline the reunion element. Do you see that? Verse 17. Whom does Paul say we will be with? He says we will be with our fellow believers but we will also be with the Lord, with the Lord. That's the, I think, the most important thing for us to know tonight. When Jesus returns, we will never be separated from Him. We will never be asked to leave Him. We will be reunited with people we've loved, people we've lost in the Lord Jesus Christ, spouses, friends, family, children, we will be with him forever. And what Paul wants to do, he wants to reassure troubled believers that, that no sheep is going to be lost. Even if they've already gone through the valley of the shadow of death, even if they've already died, Paul is telling these believers, Jesus still has his hands on them. He has still got a hold of them. It's a great comfort to us this evening. Um, but some people have isolated verse 17 and have said that what is being spoken of here is a rapture where Christians leave the world 
leave the rest of humanity, the rest of humanity is kind of left behind for a season before Jesus really returns. And I am going to frustrate one or two of you, I think, and I'm going to say I'm not totally convinced that that is what Paul is speaking about. First, I think there's a real um, note of finality here. When, when Jesus comes, he is back for good. He is back forever. We will always, we will all be with him. Second, in the Bible, when clouds are mentioned, maybe you can see a reference to clouds in verse 17. What they, what they really signify is God's presence. I think of Sinai, think of uh, that great event. Um, not only that, in Ephesians 2, the devil is described as prince of the power of the air. And so lots of people have suggested that uh, Paul here is using this language, maybe you don't agree with this, but Paul is using this language to show that when Christ returns, it will spell the end for demonic powers. Jesus will come onto territory that demons thought they occupied. Thirdly, I think it's really important for us to remember that our future, the, the Bible tells us our future as believers is ultimately physical. It will be the resurrected, the ascended Lord Jesus who returns. He, he won't come as some sort of disembodied spirit. And so if we meet him in the air, if I can put it like this, we aren't going to stay in the air forever. There's a final reason I think is uh, most helpful. It's what, it's what the word meet means. Some of you are thinking, what on earth is Will uh, talking about here? The word meet. Many commentators, they point out that uh, the word Paul uses in verse 17, it's the same kind of word that was used to describe what would happen when a really important person would come to town, a dignitary. And as they got to the edge of the city, what would happen is really prominent citizens from the community, they would, they would go out to them. And they would then accompany them on that last part of their journey. They would come with him to the place he was visiting. It's the kind of thing that ha still happens today, isn't it? The king, the king comes to a school, and who meets him at the gate? The headmaster, doesn't he? The governors. What's being described here, I think, is, is a kind of enthronement. And if you read a psalm like Psalm 47... Later on, I think you'll see some echoes of it. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid this, the sounding of trumpets. God is king of all the earth. Here is God in this passage. He's, he's coming back to earth. He's seated on a throne. When Jesus returns, he will come as king. Come to rule. Come to his territory. Now, however, maybe I've not persuaded you about verse 17. Maybe you still believe in a rapture, in one sense, it doesn't matter. And yet, I hope you can see, I hope you can see the great encouragement here. 
Paul says, when Jesus does return, we will all be with him. We will be held close by him. And so whether we die as Christians or whether we're here when he returns, we can have confidence. That's what Paul wants us to know tonight. If you're a Christian this evening, let that thought go down deep into your heart. Picture people. Picture people you will see again. Let God remind you just how amazing it is to be a Christian. So we see two things in this passage. We see uh, a certain reunion, but there's a second thing. In verses 1 to 11, we see a sudden division, a sudden division. And I think if the first half of this passage is about a, a coming together, a reunion, then verses 1 to 11, they're, if you like, they're about the opposite. They remind us that when Jesus comes... It will be a day of sudden separation, parting. Now, let's think about the, the suddenness first. Look at the two illustrations. They're familiar if we've, if we've read the Bible for a number of years. Look at the two illustrations Paul uses. He speaks about the arrival of a baby, and he speaks about the arrival of a thief. Now, when a baby is born, there is a lot of buildup, isn't there? Um, there is nine months of planning and getting things ready and thinking, we have got this. We're so organized. The hospital bag is packed. The Moses basket is ready. We've even picked a name. We've been to a pregnancy class. We've even, we've even read a book. And then the contractions start, don't they? And now the baby is coming. This is it. You cannot stop it. You can't say, I've still got a chapter to go. It is happening. It is unstoppable. Nothing prepares you for it, does it? And nothing prepares you for a thief. A thief doesn't uh, put a note through your letterbox and say, you know, I'm thinking maybe I might, I might come to your house on Saturday, maybe just after midnight. No, it's sudden. When I was uh, training as a teacher in London, I was um, lodging with someone in Ealing, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and realizing that there was a man standing on the conservatory outside my bedroom window and that my window was open. It, it was terrifying, especially when he, he came back two weeks later. When Jesus comes... It will be unexpected. Look what Paul says. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. This is unavoidable. This will happen. It's exactly the same language Jesus used in Matthew 24. It will be sudden. And it will also mean separation. If you scan down, if you look at chapter 5, look at the verses. Look at the opposites. In verse 4, Paul talks about darkness and light. 
uh, not verse four, sorry, verse, yeah, verse four and five, darkness, and then a mention of light in, in verse five, isn't it? In six, he talks about being asleep or drunk, being sober, being awake. In eight, he talks about wrath and salvation. Paul's saying when Jesus comes, there's going to be a division. There's, no, there's not going to be any sitting on the fence. C.S. Lewis, he captured it uh, really well. He wrote this, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world, if they quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right, but this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late to choose your side. And so, if you're not a Christian this evening, the Bible is just so clear It's not, we want you to come and meet Jesus because we think he's great and you should meet him too. The message of the Bible is you are going to meet Jesus. And becoming a Christian is, in a way, is recognizing that ahead of time. It is asking him to swap places with us. It's asking him to take judgment that we deserve, whoever we are, whatever we've done. We can ask him to do that for us. He will do it. But there's no hope unless we do. And this is all, this view of history, this view of the world, it's so different, isn't it, to the way that uh, Western culture views our world. Western culture says progress, constantly going up, progress, things just getting better over time. Other cultures think differently, don't they? They, they think of cycles of history. Uh, Sometimes a person is just honest enough, though, to point out that, you know, things will actually come to an end one day. Bertrand Russell, listen to this, he he wrote that when it comes to our beginning, all man's hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs, they're simply the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms. It's total chance that we're here, he says. And then he talks about our end. No fire, he says, no heroism. No intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. And all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, in other words, the whole of human history, he says, is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And then to prove he was a really cheerful character, he said this, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can we truly live. And yet what's he doing there? He's taking his worldview to its logical conclusion, isn't he? It's incredibly bleak, but it's incredibly honest. He's saying, Everything is going to end one day, and just knowing that we have to know that. 
And yet the Christian knows that's not true, don't we? If that is our ultimate end, if the universe is just breaking down, then nothing we do now has any significance. There is there's no meaning to our lives. But that's not what Christians believe. You and I, we believe Christ, history is going somewhere. We believe there will be a final judgment. One day Christ will return. And that fact, that reality, that has implications for how we are to live uh, here and now. Look at the language Paul uses in verse 6 to the end. In, in view of this great division, he says that God wants us to live sober lives, self-controlled lives. He wants us to stay awake. He wants us to, to live in light of what we know to be true. Paul is not saying, now you're a Christian, you really need to keep up God's standards to be sure you'll be saved on the last day. He's not saying, Jesus kind of cleaned the canvas for you, don't mess it up again. He's not saying that. Instead, what he's saying, he's calling us to be what we will be, to be what we are. That's the New Testament ethic. Look at verse 5, we are called... We are to be children of the light, children of the day. It's beautiful language, isn't it? Um, in Romans, Paul uses um, similar language. I think if I remember correctly, it's uh, chapter 15. He says this, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. And if you look at verse 8, maybe you can see there, you can see this, that lovely triplet, faith, hope, and love, that Paul um, often uses, doesn't he, in his letters? Faith, and then love, and then hope, in this order. But look at what Paul connects it to. He connects it to armor, a breastplate, a helmet. And what he's saying here is, as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to remember that we are in the midst of of a great battle, the last days. The last days, Paul says, have already begun. We are living in the overlap of the ages. We are living in the now and the not yet. Victory is certain. And yet you and I were called to fight. We're called to, to wage war. We're not to be drunk. We're to be sober. We're to be awake, he says. We're called to battle our sin. And yet we also need to remember that God himself fights for us. See this language in verse 8, breastplate, um, helmet, that kind of thing. What's really interesting is that Paul is that um, Paul is picking up here from Isaiah 59. If you look at it later, in that chapter, God is the one... God is the one who puts on righteousness as a breastplate. God is the one who puts on the helmet of salvation. He is the one who is going to fight for his people. God really is for us as Christians. And we see this in verse 9, don't we? Sometimes I think we hear of Christ's return and we fear it, don't we? But what does Paul say? God has not 
destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe this evening that is a reminder that you need. If you are a Christian, then wrath is not your destiny. You are not doomed to wrath. Sometimes Christians can think that. Very sincere Christians. Christians with very tender consciences. They can think, well, that, that I'm just sort of doomed to that. No. God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. You can know tonight that you will be safe on that day. That is not presumption. Jesus died for us. Why did He do that? So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we die before His return or are still alive when He comes, we will live with Him. And so, what is the application? Well, it's verse 11, isn't it? And it's verse 18 in the first part. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Remind one another of this. Because so often in church life, we get like this, don't we? And we need, brothers and sisters, to lift up our heads, don't we? To come alongside us to say, don't lose heart. Lift up your head. Keep going. Keep fighting sin. Remember what is coming. That's what we need as God's people. That's what God wants us to give one another. God has not destined us for wrath if our trust is in Jesus, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Well, let's have a moment to reflect and then I'll pray.